0: This week on the Recruitment Flex, Shelley is heading to Germany, and we reminisce on the days before cell phones. Should job offers be a legal document or a branding opportunity? Does leveraging gender-neutral language in your job posting really make a difference? Plus, what diversity, equity, and inclusion data you should be tracking? The Recruitment Flex starts after this message from our partner at VanHack. Hey there, Shelly. Have you heard about VanHack?
1: Oh, you mean the HR tech sensation that's taking the recruitment world by storm?
0: That's the one. VanHack is revolutionizing how companies find top talent globally.
1: Imagine connecting with skilled professionals from all around the world without the hassle.
0: Absolutely. VanHack has a great team and seamless technology where recruiters and companies can discover talent with ease.
1: And they have a talent pool specifically curated for tech professionals.
0: Tech-savvy and globally connected, just what every company needs.
1: VanHack offers tailored solutions for companies of all sizes, from startups to Fortune 500 giants.
0: So if you're ready to take your recruitment game to the next level, join VanHack today.
1: Yeah, visit VanHack and unlock a world of talent right at your fingertips.
0: VanHack.com, where global recruitment meets simplicity. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge.
1: And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now.
0: Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Shelly, we're in the. Different time zone, different part of the country, but you still look great.
1: Oh, that is so kind. I was just going to say the same thing about you. The lighting is good. You look happy. Why don't you share with the audience, where are you?
0: Yeah, I'm actually in Moncton, New Brunswick. So the head office of the company I work for and also where I was born. So it's always fun to come back. I want to tell you about an experience that I had today, Shelley. So today... Our CEO was speaking at the New Brown Street Community College graduation. So I'm like, hey, Mm -hmm. I'll tag along. Well, first of all, they sat us in the VIP section. I was sitting next to all the MLAs in Moncton. So I had some really interesting conversations. Is that what you wore? Sorry. What you're
1: wearing right now? Is that what you wore? No, no. I had a jacket. (laughs) What's wrong with what I'm wearing? (laughs) Do you know what? Sorry. I interrupted you, but only because... (laughs) that's the one thing my boys just get so mad at me for i'll just say is that what you're wearing (laughs) (laughs) anyway so you're sitting with mlas but you weren't expecting to
0: and i thought he was gonna speak and we're gonna like fuck off but no we sat through 400 people getting their diplomas i did not even sit through my own graduation because i couldn't handle it it was a little bit it was hell actually to be honest it was a long morning But there was a couple of things that really was interesting to me. And we talk a lot about the demographics of people that are graduating. And I really got a first world experience of what it actually looks like. Atlantic Canada, for people that don't know, is probably our oldest population base in Canada. To give you an idea, 40% of the population here in Atlantic Canada is a non-working age. And if you compare that to say Alberta, Alberta is around twenty six percent. So fifteen points is a big delta, right? Sure. So there's obviously a challenge with younger people coming into the workforce, and they're seeing that with massive talent scarcity with most of the roles. We're seeing that everywhere, but I think it's really pronounced here in of Canada. One of the things that I noticed that ninety. 94- percent and I'm not exaggerating, I think that number might be higher, were new Canadians or fairly new Canadians. So within the last four years, I graduated from the same community college, and I would say it was 99% Canadians that have been here for a really long time. Right. So really big shift in demographic. The other thing I noticed is it was around 75% to 80% women that were part of the graduating class. It wasn't a trade school. There was elements of trades, but it was very focused on tourism and hospitality overall. A lot of business management, a lot of HR management, marketing was in there. But 75 to 80% women, it goes really with the data that we're seeing. We're seeing a big decline in men graduating from university. And I thought they were all going to community college. From that one experience, it doesn't seem like it. And that's a concern for me, Shelley. I don't know how you feel about that. Obviously, you have two sons that have graduated from university, but where are our young males? What are they doing? Are they not going to school at all? Are they going into a trade? What is happening?
1: Yeah. Do you know, I think back, one of Brooklyn's high school teachers would just look around and say, I feel so sorry for you. Look at the gene pool you got to choose from. <laughs>
0: I know. Wow. Wow! I know.
1: I'm trying to make light of it. But I do understand what you're saying. Because if most of the graduating class is women, it's no better than if it were back the other way, where 90% of the class is men. Right? No. There is a bit of that evening out, but I don't have any answers very interesting observations, though. And from the companies that are doing business in Atlantic Canada, they tell me the same thing, that Mm. most of their labor applicants that they are getting in the Atlantic provinces are those who are new Canadians. And we have quite a few companies here in the West that will target workers in Atlantic Canada to come and do like short-term, very intense work,
0: but wow. one of the things that I've seen as well is, okay, they're graduating school in Atlantic Canada, but the anecdotal that I hear is after they're done, they're all moving to Ontario, right? They're moving to the major right? cities, which is a major concern for Atlantic Canada because the reason that we're driving a lot of immigration is we just don't have the workforce. We don't have the population. We have to find reasons for them to stay locally in this local market. I'm very interested to see what, that is going to bring in what the workforce in all parts of Canada and the U.S. are going to look like 20 years from now, because it's definitely changing. It's needed. We're just not having enough babies. And Shelley, I've done my part when it comes to that.
1: You have. And thank you for that. Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> <laughs> Can I share some exciting news with you? So Parker is graduating from his master's degree in Leipzig, Germany and Brooke and I are going to go. We are going to go over and celebrate with him. So he was part of the university graduation crowd that didn't get any sort of grad ceremony because it was during COVID. All we got for graduation was watching his name go across a screen. Mm -hmm. So I promised him, no matter where he was, we would make a big deal out of it. So we are, we're going to go and see him and see Germany in the summer. So really excited about that. Mom's going to look born? after Sylvester and Stanley. Now, you you got to take care of those cats, right? <laughs> yes.
0: Oh, I'm a little bit lost though, Shelley. Yes. I remember he graduated. Yeah. But is he living in Germany now and working? Yes. Like, When is he coming back to Canada or is he not coming back to Canada?
1: That was quite undecided. For anyone out there listening who may have kids in your home that are thinking, where do I go for school? After you complete your bachelor's, you can go to Germany to take a master's degree and beyond for free. He even gets subsidized housing, like right on campus. He pays 100 euros for the whole year for his master's degree. The German what's smart? his master? He's got a master's degree in American studies.
0: Okay, parents. I'm going to give you an opposite advice. (laughs) Don't let your kids go to Germany to get a master's degree in American studies.
1: But Listen, his undergrad is in international relations. So it actually makes sense. I think he's going to stay. His professor has offered him to do a PhD. So professional student.
0: There you go. Yeah, you've got a professional student. So you're (laughs) gone next week, right? But you'll record with me next week? Yeah. And then you're going to have
1: to find a substitute. Oh, I have a substitute. Our
0: old friend Kim Wilkinson has already confirmed. So for people Mm -hmm. that love listening to Kim, Um, she's going to be co-hosting in two weeks from now.
1: That I haven't talked
0: great. to Kim in a long time, so I'm very excited to have her. Yeah. But I'll miss you, Shelley.
1: Oh, oh, of course. Uh,
0: but <laughs> Kim will help me deal with the sorrow of you gone. Shelley, <laughs> you sent me an interesting article, and I, I want to talk yeah. about it. Can you highlight a little bit about it? Did you ever watch the show Sopranos? Of course, i watched yes, the show okay, Sopranos. So
1: my favorite line by Tony Soprano was he walks in the room, and the guys are all sitting around a card table, and they're all talking about remember when. And he says, remember when is the lowest form of conversation. So I'd like to have a low form of conversation with you.
0: <laughs> I so, thought the weather this, was the lowest form of conversation based on what you've told me.
1: That too. That too. But yeah, remember, when. remember when. Remember yes. when. Yes. Remember when. So this article talked about remember when there were no cell phones. It wasn't that long ago. It was maybe two decades ago, but where were we? We were just coming into the workforce. And this was such a fun article because what did we do? And it started off by a younger coworker saying to the author of this article, I, I just could not get their head around the fact that not only did they work full time, but studied at night and got their master's degree while they were working. And the comment was, it's incomprehensible that you could work And take a master's degree at night. Because the question was, well, when are you responding to your emails? If you're in class every night. Some interesting things roll out of this. Meaning, if you didn't have a cell phone on you all the time, how did things work? How did you do things like organize where you're going tonight after work with your friends? You know what? We actually phoned them. (laughs) Yeah, we phoned them. We're phoning somebody now.
0: Is Sorry? remember when you just showed up at people's house It's like hey I'm here for a visit If someone did that to me today oh no I, I would just like go the door, door and hide there's no way you better call me if you're coming over But yes I thought it was an interesting article just a perception of what we used to do not that long ago you're completely right and on that point my first job was selling cell phones. And this was when the Motorola flip phone was the frenzy. And I made a killing doing that because you would get paid around $150 every new activation. And no one had a cell phone, so every new person was a new activation. And I remember during Christmas, I would do fifteen to twenty new activations a day. So I would be making two, three thousand dollars in the peak time selling cell phones at the mall.
1: Oh my god! Um,
0: how times have changed! And but even explain to a kid today, cell phones didn't have internet. No, you could do two things: you could call. And you could text, but you had to text using like the press the one three times and then the four or six times. It's so different. And I don't know if we're more efficient now than we were back then. I think I got more things done because I wasn't as distracted as I am now.
1: Yeah. So you know, the other thing I remember, you would not make a cell call unless it was urgent. Or if you took an inbound call, you remember they used to charge you for inbound calls? Well, it would cost you minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. You phoning me just cost me 10 bucks, And the (laughs) prices, hey, oh my God.
0: Well, I pay more now than I did then with data and all that bullshit. I think my phone's $100 a month. I probably paid like $30 a month back then. But obviously, I do a lot more with it. Also, it's perception, right? If you're new to the workforce, there's no reason that you don't have time to do your job and also do your master's. If you don't have kids, you, you have all the free time in the world. So I still don't buy it as an excuse because I like, how many times are you getting work emails that late that you have to respond? And maybe I'm being completely naive because that's not how I work with my team, but I don't know, times have changed. Shelly. I want to jump into the news. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Canada's new immigration plan. So we're bringing half a million every year, which is actually exactly the same amount of people that the U.S. is bringing. And on that note, we just hit 40 million in population in Canada last week. So 40 million, and there's 360 million in the U.S., and we're bringing the same amount of immigration to the country, which... I think it's a good thing, right? We need mm-hmm. it for the workforce. But one of the things that kind of made us question is the high proficiency in French is a major criteria. And we're like, oh, there's only one province that's really French. Little reminder of where we're focused on when it comes to immigration. So healthcare, STEM, trades such as carpenters, plumbers, and contractors, transport, agriculture. And kudos to you, Shelley, to finding this article. If you look at those categories, Quebec sits on the top three with vacancies on all of those. So it starts to make sense, right? You do need a high proficiency in French to be able to work in Quebec. It's their official
1: language. It made a lot of sense. What was your thoughts around that? Well, thanks for pointing that out because that was a head scratcher for us. So this explains it. When we saw the numbers, the breakdown, for example, job vacancies, in the trades category. This really surprised me. Ontario, 55,000. Not surprising because they have the largest population. Yeah. Quebec was number two with 34,495 vacancies in trades, which is way more than BC and way more than Alberta. That explains it. So we wanted to share that with the audience. The next thing that I know you and I talked a lot about, especially in 2021 and 2022, there was a lot of press around people retiring and leaving the workforce, the great resignation. Well, what part of the great resignation made up people who were retiring at 55 or 60? Interesting report came out from the CBC that talked about more than half of the Canadians that are still in the workforce past the age of 60, are there out of necessity. So what we're seeing is those that had retired because all of your stocks and investments were up, but what they didn't count on was inflation. And if you still have a mortgage, if your mortgage was a variable rate and you've gone from $600 a month to $1,500 a month, you're having to get a job. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring that forward because in the past we talked so much about how many people left the workforce. Now we're seeing some having to come back in. Does that surprise you at all, Serge? It doesn't
0: surprise me just seeing the amount of inflation has been, well, it's been two years of inflation, right? And there's a couple of factors. The biggest one is the increase in interest rate. To your point, still a lot of people have mortgages or either extended mortgages to get their kids through school or whatever the fact is of why they needed that money. So when you go from 3% to 7%, if you're in a variable rate, how do you afford that without additional income? So I do think a lot of people have come back in the workforce and I think a lot of them have come in the workforce and not making as much money as they did when they left. Cause they've been forced into the roles that we have the most demand because a lot of what I call the laptop class type roles are very challenging right now. We're dealing with two different economies. We're dealing with still a ton of talent scarcity on trades, hospitality, retail, those in the laptop class. There's not a lot of roles. And I'll use recruiter as the perfect example. I looked today. Do you know how many recruiter roles there was in Canada? No, tell me. Less than 70. Like legit recruiter role, right? It was crazy. I remember when there was like 3,000 in Canada not long ago. A lot of people are feeling the pinch of an economy that's really not hitting the bottom in any way. But there is impacts. The inflation being the biggest impact that people Mm -hmm. are like, shit, I got to go back to work to pay these bills. Shelly, let's jump into tip of the week.
1: Tip Tip of of the week. Why do you have to do that? Why? Why? I, because it Why? annoys you. You're, just, you're just I love trying to it. get on my nerves. Yes. I hate that. Tip of the week I wanted to talk about a reminder. And that is when somebody is changing jobs, they've accepted your offer and they are going to be joining your organization. There's always that window of time where they may have accepted your offer, and they may continue interviewing, or someone that they interviewed with before has come back to them. So how can we fill in that gap of time before they start with you? I wanted to give three things, cheap and easy, but really impactful ideas for what a recruiter can do to bridge that time gap. The first one is free, easy and simple, but has huge impact. And that is, text them a picture of their workspace or a picture of your team. Like cost mm. you nothing. You're probably already texting with them. What would it cost you to text a picture of your team and everybody waving? Nothing. Or send them swag to their house before they begin. Imagine how you would feel if you got the coffee mug for Career Beacon in the mail and there you are still interviewing with other companies. You'd feel like you were cheating. And the third one is get them to help you write the announcement that they're joining your organization. Three simple things you can ask people. What's your favorite movie? Where's the best vacation you've ever taken? And tell me about your favorite meal. Great things to keep them engaged because people can start to visualize that those other employees are reading this welcome email and it's not so stuffy. So that's my tip of the week. Cover the gap of time between when they resign and before they join you
0: easy and cheap. It describes me perfectly. No, really good tip Shelly. And Thanks. you mentioned swag in there and I forgot about this, but I do want to call out hiring branch. Cause I got my swag in the mail and a nice fuck interview t-shirt. Shelly, you haven't received yours yet. I'm sure mine will arrive today. Yes, but I can't really wear it in the house because like my daughters are going to ask, what does that mean? So I will save it to wear it in occasions that my kids are not
1: around. So I snagged a shirt from them when we were at Unleash and I wore it. I was helping some friends move and they were like, well, we don't expect to see that on you.
0: <laughs> it was pretty cute. Shelly, let's jump into the recruitment insides.
1: All right, let's do that. I don't know about you, but when I look at offer letters, I am constantly amazed with what we send candidates. And what made me think of this was a line from James Ellis's new book that talked about how you may have this beautiful brand experience where your living, your message, and how you want to voice your employer brand. It's how we recruit, it's how we interview, it's how we do everything right up until the point where you get the offer letter. And they send you this document that is nine pages long, and looks like something straight out of a lawyer's office. And it's like a glass of cold water in the face. So the opportunity here is to take a look at how you write it. And I know, every time I bring this up, I think lawyers throw daggers at me. We need to protect the organization. And if you don't do this, you know, right at offer, then you're exposing the company to risk. And I'm saying bullshit. No, you're not. The offer letter should be only those things that people want to know. They want to know when, what am I being hired for? How much vacation and when do benefits start? And what's my start date? That's all they really want to know to cram into that document, your privacy policy, your safety policies, your policy on probation. No, that's not the place for it. First of all, if what you're trying to do is cram it all into this document to say, look, see, I can hold you to it. Boy, is that ever a turnoff for candidates?
0: A hundred percent. So James Ellis book, Employment Branding for Small Business. And even if you're not in a small business, you should read that book. It's one of the things that I found the most insightful and I never thought about is your offer letter is an employment branding opportunity. So why are you not taking advantage? And to your point, I've seen offer letters that are 10 to 20 to 30 pages. It's nonstop. So make your offer letters better. I'm 100% behind you, Shelley, such a great point.
1: So what would you say to anyone who's listening, who's like, there's no way legal, it's going to go for this. They're going to say you can't, they will absolutely shut you down and say, nope, nope, we're employment lawyers, and we know best. How would yeah. you handle that? But right?
0: well, Let's be real. There's a lot of organizations, you are not going to win that battle no matter what. I'm talking about large corporations. Things don't change. The process is the process. But I think like anything else is being upfront the value of the offer letter and being like, hey, we can do the privacy statements, but we can all do that after the fact. The goal here in a tight labor market for particular talent, we want to secure this talent in its first experience is a 20-page legal document probably not a good experience. It starts off really rough, right? It it just, you need lawyers, but they just take out the, I don't know, the joie de vivre out of (laughs) anything. And that's just not the experience you want for a new employee. So I completely agree. I guess it's building the case of what it should look like from the front and what it should look after the person is hired and signed your offer letter, if you can build that case, it makes sense. But also I want you to check out James Ellis book and go in that section, particularly because I want you to get an idea of what you should be writing. Like your wording in your document doesn't all need to be legalese. You can actually put some fun things in there. Obviously there's some elements that have to be written in a legal way, but
1: have fun with it. Or how about even making it feel welcoming? Yeah. Well, yeah, not. not? every company culture is fun, right? But to no. feel like we're glad you made this decision, yes. what a novel idea. What's our next in- recruitment insight this week, sir? Yeah,
0: I want to jump into the next recruitment insight. And this is one that I'm admitting that maybe I was wrong. So for the last, I would say seven, eight years, one of the big things I've been talking about is your gender language in your job posts of how critical right. it is. And citing tools like the gender decoder that takes your job description and actually tells you if it's heavily masculine or feminine and how you write. And to be fair, a lot of the data gathered from that, there was a clear business case that it made a difference. Well, new research has come out that is showing a little bit different. And Shelly, as you know me, I'm willing to admit when. I'm wrong. And I'm starting to think this data makes a lot more sense. And to be fair, you were wrong too, as well, because I think you were on the same train as I was. Okay. Can't (laughs) be alone by myself. Okay. But to give you a little bit more context, in the past, we were talking about words like competitive, aggressive, challenge, decisive, courage, dominate, champion, driven, fearless in job ads were very male focused and turned off women to apply to jobs as. The Other side, it showed that women needed collaborative, dependable, honest, loyal, interpersonal, committed, connected, patient. Well, first of all, like, more I'm seeing this, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit, right? Women are competitive, they're aggressive. Like, why did I fall into this trap? And this all was based on a research that was done in 2011, but recently there was a a new survey done at MIT Sloan, Professor Emilio Castilla and Michigan State hai Jin Rowe, they cited two studies. One research included data on 487,000 job seekers and 296,000 U.S. job postings over a two-year period. The other one involved a two-stage field experiment with 2,500 job seekers. So fairly substantial amount of data. This results of the studies led researchers to conclude that altering gender language has no substantial effect on women's application rates. Here's what they say. Our findings reveal that both the language used when posting jobs and the gender of the recruiters have no effect that matter in practice on how women and men behave during recruitment we caution that the practice of simply altering the language of job descriptions may not help organization address diversity issues. I guess what I've been preaching for a long time might not
1: be accurate. What's your thoughts here, Shelley? So, Serge, that's not what I took away from this article. What I took what away you was you can't do just one thing and expect it to miraculously change. I do believe that if you are doing that as one of a number of things to reduce barriers or perceptions, it's one simple thing you can do is just be aware of using what we call troublesome words. But it's not the whole picture. The message was, this is not the silver bullet, that Mm. all you need to do is change the language on your job ad. I believe that what this is saying is there needs to be recruiter training, hiring manager training, even sensitivity or awareness within the work environment. If you're really trying to move the needle, if a company is only looking to check a box and say, well, we certainly on our talent attraction funnel have no perceived barriers. It's don't put all your eggs in this one basket. That's what I took away. Well, I think you're
0: right. I think one of the key points, though, is a lot of companies just do that. They just change the language and be like, oh, look at us. We're diverse and we're heavily focused on meeting the needs of men and women and how we advertise the jobs. And to your point, it's such a tiny, minute piece of it. And I don't know if I recommend anymore that you should even be bothered or concerned about it. I guess you can't go wrong by doing it, but it's not going to have any effect. You're not doing the rest.
1: Exactly. So don't expect it's going to have a big measurable impact. Let's carry on this theme about companies taking on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you know, my fear has always been that it was a fad. Are companies really investing in it? Are they following through with all the things we heard, certainly in? in the last few years, that there needs to be this big focus, and who should be focused? Is diversity, equity, and inclusion led by HR, or is it led by somebody specific in the organization? During the pandemic, what we saw was that companies who, prior to the pandemic, had made commitments towards investing in diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, 27% of organizations around the world put a hold on it and had a lot of just really lame excuses as well in terms of why they stopped or slowed down their investment. And the longer term effect is really what trust can we have in organizations that are saying or reporting that they have these initiatives. So I wanted to talk a little bit about data collection. If organizations are going to do this, and if they're going to continue on investing in it. And I think what we see most is the front of the process in recruitment, where we are asking people to self-identify or disclose during the hiring process, gender, race. And for me, I understand why you want to collect that as far as we know that we only had 10 women apply, or did we have 200 women and only 10 decided to complete your stupid application process. We don't know that. So being thoughtful about how you're collecting the data in talent acquisition, we need to speak up. We need to speak up and talk about when in the process is the right place to collect data. What I've always thought is we're actually having the opposite effect of what we're trying to accomplish. To fill in all these forms and self-disclose before you even apply for the job. But I don't believe many companies are measuring or reporting that. Do you think I'm onto something here, Serge? What did you think about this article on how we collect the data?
0: Well, I think the key point that it says there initially, and we've talked about this. So, Boz, if you're listening, we're talking about it again. It's not happening, right? Like the minute the times are tough, and this is something we predicted, we said this, that this is the first thing that's going to get dropped. And I think for me, the most frustrating thing, and I see it all over the place, even with Pride Month, of all these companies changing their logo to the Pride logo. But what are they actually doing? And if you dig in deep and you go to Glassdoor or Indeed Reviews, they're not exactly living that every day. So not having any programs, not executing. And this is going to sound really bad. I'm okay if you don't have a diversity program. I'm okay with it. It's your choice as a private company, right? Is it the right thing for your business long term? Well, that can be argued that it's not. I rather have that than saying you have programs in place and actually not executing on it. And we're going to see more and more of organizations dropping off from diversity, equity, inclusion, because it's not in the news anymore. But when it comes to the data, I think you brought up a couple of good points because we give up really easily, right? Well, let's put self-identification at the start of the process. Well, tell you what, I'm never going to fill that. As a middle-aged white male, I feel like you're going to discriminate against me. And I'll tell you, I've had that come from many women in the HR space that when they see that, they're like, oh, shit. If I put that I'm a white female, obviously, we've had a lot of opportunities and advantages. So I'm not saying woo me. But in self-interest, when you're applying for a job, what are you going to do if no one reports on it? If (laughs) a lot of people feel like they're going to get discriminated if they're doing is isn't that the opposite of what you're trying to achieve? Exactly. So that is my big challenge with that. And I agree. I think the data you collect after the fact is absolutely critical. Right now, companies can say whatever, but there is not a lot of public records of what their diversity stats look like. And until we start publishing that, and keeping companies accountable to those stats, a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion programs are a complete waste of time for everyone, in my opinion. Let's start publishing these numbers, similar to pay transparency.
1: One last thing I wanted us to talk about today that I thought was really interesting. I was thinking back over earlier this year where IBM announced that they were going to be doing not layoffs and not hiring freeze, because both of those words can have an impact on stock price. Their stock price actually increased as they said they were not going to fill positions because they believe AI was going to replace the need for those people. The article this week that got me connecting the dots was around Accenture. They're a very large organization. They've decided to do the opposite. And so I just wanted us to talk about how Accenture on the flip side is going to double down on AI and they are looking for the best and the brightest, like 80,000 is what they would be looking to hire and then train and have them being involved in their enterprise generative AI based platforms to help clients defining business cases, which is what Accenture does, right? They're a big consulting firm. But I thought it was interesting, like two big players. One decides I'm going to stop hiring humans and let AI do it. The other one says just the opposite. We're going to hire more people. So in your opinion, Serge, who do you think is going to survive in the long run? Who's going to survive? It's two different business, but they both do a lot of
0: consulting, right? They're fairly equal in that sense of scope, size. It's two different approaches that could both be successful. I think there's some value in what IBM is doing. So what they're trying to do is forcing the company to use AI, right? not laying off, but they are doing a hiring freeze being like, hey, these 8,500 roles we were going to open, we're going to figure out how we're going to leverage AI to be able to do this. And I think there is a lot of value in doing that, right? If you're a force, you're going to find ways. Compared to Accenture, hiring 80,000 people seems extremely over the top. I can tell you there might be 10,000 of those that are actually going to be effective in doing this, in my opinion. And if we look at what Meta is doing right now with Twitter and a lot of tech companies is they understand that they overinflated what they have to be able to do business, right? And they're scaling back and they're not seeing any negative effect or very limited Twitter, it could be argued the other way. So I think Accenture is going down the road that they're just going to blow it up and I don't think it's going to give them the impact that they think they will compared to IBM that's it's going to force them to leverage AI on a daily basis. If I took the guess, IBM's going to win out. We're going to see two years from now, Accenture,
1: 70,000 of the 80,000 laid off. Well, we certainly know IBM has been heavily invested in artificial intelligence. For a long I mean, time. Long time. Long time. But they failed, right? Like they have With IBM successful. Watson? Well, I would say, from what I know and understand about their approach to the market for the IBM Watson product, they were trying to build a community where if you wanted to be part of their think tanks or maybe a startup using Watson, you actually had to pay them. Yeah, I think the conversation started at 100000 And these consultants would see if you had a viable business model or business idea, but you had to yeah. pay IBM. Which really goes against what we've seen to be really successful is not saying it has to be a freemium model, but some of the best ideas are born out of the fact that you allow those ideas to grow versus Mm. you got to pay your way in. On that same train of thought though, Serge, I'm applauding Accenture and I think they'll win in the end because AI is already like the genies out of the bottle. If you're going to allow it to run wild, versus getting some of the best and brightest minds and talent to start contributing to the AI practice and generative AI specifically. So I think they're going to win. I think they're going to clobber us all by mm. doubling down on this particular part of their business, because that's what companies well, are going to want to know. I, I'm How am I going to use general. this? I don't have to I'm use gonna...
0: Watson anymore. Can you just not ask generative AI like, how do I do this? It's going to tell you. So why are you hiring 80000 But you might be right. I And I'm going to be completely frank. I don't know. I do not know, Shelly, where this is going. All I know is it's going really fast, but I don't know who's going to win. And it's exciting. Exciting, exactly. Scary, yes. exciting. It's like your first date, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Which you haven't had in a long time. So <laughs> on that note... Shelly, we'll record next week, but get ready for okay. Germany. So excited. Have you figured out what you're wearing yet? Have you had <laughs> your Germany outfit figured out? Or are you just going to shop and bring $2 million like you usually do and just buy $2
1: million of clothes? I wish. No, I would never spend that kind of money. I know you exaggerate, but actually you're on the right track. I don't plan to bring very much at all. Other than no. shoes Ooh. and what? <laughs> maybe I will get a date. Yeah, so, maybe. Nice German boy. I'm just bringing comfortable shoes and a couple of outfits. But yeah, the plan is to shop.
0: For that time. sounds like fun. So Shelly, I will be in Calgary the next time I see you. So enjoy the rest of your week and weekend. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank
1: you. Bye now. Bye now. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectxt.com. Mention the Recruitment Flex and get 10% off annual plans. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts,